0: John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing.
1: Thanks for reading that, Sean, and uh, Curtis, thanks for that introduction. Um, I scribbled a few other superlatives on Curtis's paper, but he didn't read those, so um, just kidding. Thanks for laughing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm honored to uh, to speak this morning and to get to highlight Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, I want to start off with... Uh, a story that I heard a few years ago that's, that stuck with me that I, that I hope to set our time with um, this morning, it's a true story about a man named Matthew Emmons, who is a, a guy from New Jersey and is one of the best rifle shooters in the world. Kind of picture shooting rifles at, you know, a, a target at a bullseye, and he was one of the best in the world and was uh, an Olympian, uh, you know, represented the United States in 2004 in Athens. Uh, in the 50-meter shot. So Matthew Emmons, this guy, one of the best in the world, was over in Athens, representing the U.S. in the 50-meter shot. So 50 meters, you know, a little over half a football field, which is crazy far for us, but for him, you know, it was an easy shot. And was so good at it. Um, then in the Olympics in 2004, heading into the last round, so in the 50-meter shot, there were several different rounds, several different heats, heading to the last heat. Um, he was so far ahead in first place that all he needed to do was hit the target. Didn't need a bullseye, didn't need, you know, one of the first or second rings. All he had to do was hit the target, and he would have won the gold. You know, his lifelong dream of going to the Olympics and winning gold was within reach one shot away from winning gold. And uh, everything that he worked his whole life for in this moment. And uh, he, he lines up there. It's a true story. In lane two, he was kind of like the second, you know, kind of alleyway Puts the gun on his shoulder, and again, a shot he's made thousands of times before. Puts the gun on his shoulder, looks down the sights, aims for the bullseye. Even though he doesn't need it, he aims for the bullseye. He just has to hit anywhere. Aims for the bullseye, takes a deep breath, and pulls the trigger. And bang, he hit a perfect bullseye. He just won the gold medal, and and really everything that he'd worked for his whole life came true in this moment. Kind of adrenaline filled him, and, and was so excited Childhood dream accomplished. And uh, to his dismay, the crowd, instead of kind of being this crazy cheering, there was this, like, uh, collective gasp, and the air just got sucked out of the building. And so for him, he goes from this utter elation, childhood dream, to Whoa, what is why is no one cheering? And it takes him a few seconds to recognize what had happened. It probably felt like years for him as he kind of looks at the target, and he, no, I hit the bullseye kind of looks at his gun, looks at the crowd and his gun and the bullseye. And after a few seconds, he realizes that he hit the bullseye in lane three, that he hit the, the wrong bullseye. And it's a really sad, sad ending to the story. Not only did he not win gold, he didn't win silver, he didn't win bronze. He got knocked off the podium completely. He came in eighth place at the Olympics. And in one moment, because he hit a perfect bullseye on the wrong target, everything they'd worked his whole life for counted for nothing. And that story has stuck with me, and I want to challenge us this morning with this idea of what target are you shooting at? What is the thing or the things that you're giving your life to, the things that above all else that you're aiming at? Am am I, is this a little hot? we good? Okay, cool. What are the things that you're aiming at, that you're giving your life to? And here's a question, so kind of have that thing in your mind of the thing that you want the most, that you're giving your life to, two questions about that thing that you have in your head. Will it always love you back, and will it last forever? Is the thing that you're giving your life to, maybe it's career or family, if I can just get this job, if I can just get this promotion, if I can just make it to this college, is the thing that you're giving your life to, the thing that you're shooting at, that you're banking on coming through if you hit that bullseye, will it love you forever, and is it always going to last? You know, I was at a Young Life conference a few years ago, and uh, the speaker said this, and this, is, this, this stuck with me. He said that the greatest tragedy in life is to be really successful at something that God never asked you to do. The greatest tragedy in life, essentially, is to hit a perfect bullseye on the wrong target. And so this morning, as we look in the scripture, Sean, thanks for reading. As we look in John 21, I want to point us back to Jesus Christ, who we sang about and is the only one that we can give our lives to that is going to always love us back and it'll last for forever. So the question this morning, what are you shooting at? My hope and prayer is that we can recalibrate a little bit after looking at the scriptures and highlighting Jesus Christ, that he's the only one worthy of giving our whole lives to. So if you haven't yet, please open up to John chapter 21. Um, I want to give a little bit of a background. Uh, John 21 is the last chapter in the Gospel of John. Uh, so we're kind of picking up at the very end of the book, so to speak. And uh, John uh, was written by not John the Baptist, but the disciple John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and really one of the three guys that was closest with Jesus. And uh, he just wrote down the things that he saw, his, his eyewitness account. And... Uh, So John 21 is the story that we're going to look at, but John chapters 1 to 20, just to give you the the quick Cliff Notes version of it, um, Jesus had kind of burst onto the scene, and he'd healed a lot of people, healed the paralyzed, the lame, the sick. He restored value to women in that culture. No rabbi would restore value to women, but the woman caught in adultery, he doesn't condemn her, he doesn't stone her, he forgives her and calls her to something better. Go and leave your life of sin. So he had, you know, these crazy, awesome healing moments, and he also was a great teacher. And people largely were okay with him kind of teaching um, good things. Curtis had gone through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel, of kind of the good sayings of Jesus. You know, and and largely people were okay with him saying, hey, be nice to your neighbor, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, all that kind of stuff. But Jesus started claiming to be God. He claimed to be the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the light of the world, the good shepherd. And in, in that moment, the religious leaders weren't okay with that. They weren't cool with kind of some of the claims that Jesus was making. So in John 18, they have a phony trial for Jesus to try to put him to death, to execute him. In John 19, lead them up to John 21. In John 19, they crucify Jesus. Jesus is hung on a cross, dies a sinner's death. And in John 20, uh, Jesus rises from the dead. And we pick up at the very end of that. And all of this happens within a pretty tight window, 40 days of Jesus being crucified, Jesus rising from the dead. In the story in John chapter 21. So I just I think that it's important to, to get the kind of background of the story, just so we pick up this account with the disciples that they've been through an emotional, spiritual, physical roller coaster. That within the past couple of weeks, the man that they called Lord and Savior, they saw him crucified and died. They saw him rise from the dead. Jesus appeared to them. They're in this state of what is going on, and that's where we picked up in uh, in John 21. Uh, so I'm going to re re-read it we're going to walk through it if you're the note taking type um, I've broken up the passage into four different little sections I'll read each section pull out kind of one observation characteristic highlight of Jesus and then at the very end just have a couple questions uh, and kind of implications for us and so starting in John chapter 21 verse 1 it says this it "says It after this Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I love that John kind of names out all of his buddies and then two other disciples. You know, I think that's hilarious. So the seven of them are together. Five of them get shout-outs. Two of them are kind of anonymous. Simon Peter, who's the unofficial official leader of them, uh, says, hey, I'm I'm going fishing. They said to him, hey, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So a lot of these guys are fishermen by trade before they followed Jesus. They were fishermen. That's what they were good at. That's how they made their living. I'm sure that's what they found a lot of their identity in. So they, in this kind of emotional, mental, physical turmoil, don't really know what to do. Hey, we'll just go back to fishing. That's what we're good at. We know what to do. We know what to expect. The whole Jesus thing has been crazy the past few weeks. So let's go back to fishing. So the seven of them hop in a boat. And it says that night they caught nothing. Oftentimes, fishermen would go out at sundown, probably 7 p.m., They went out and didn't catch anything all night. And uh, I don't know about you, I've been fishing a few times, and after like three minutes, I'm like, all right, are we going to do something else now? (laughs) Are we going to start catching some fish? And uh, so they're out there for probably 10 hours, haven't caught a single thing. You think about morale on this boat. This was you and seven of your friends in this boat. Morale, I'm sure, was super low. They were tired. They were hungry. They were cranky. They were sweaty. Some of them were probably dozing off to sleep. They felt dejected. They felt like failures, the very thing that they were supposed to be good at, fishing, that they made their living doing, they had caught nothing. They were failing. And in verse 4, it says that just as day was breaking, so early in the morning, the crack of dawn, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So these disciples in this emotional turmoil go back out to fishing. They're out there for 10 hours, don't catch a single thing. They're dejected, they're tired, they're hungry, they're angry. They might be fighting with each other. And Jesus Christ is standing on the shore, and they don't realize that it's him. I love this about Jesus. The first thing that I love about Jesus is that he pursues the disciples exactly where they are. Jesus Christ, I don't think, you know, had his morning stone skipping session, you know, by the Sea of and says, he Oh, hey guys, you guys are here too. Like, I think Jesus was at the, the shore to meet those seven men. I don't think it was a coincidence that Jesus happened to be there this morning. I think Jesus knew that there were seven guys in a boat who desperately wanted their savior. And Jesus Christ showed up on the shore of their life and they didn't recognize that it was him. The very person that they were created for, created to know Jesus, is standing a hundred yards from them and they don't realize that it's him because they're so tired and because of all the circumstantial stuff that's happening. The first thing that I love about Jesus is that he pursues the disciples exactly where they're at. Jesus Christ is a God of pursuit and he tracks them down and he chases them down. So Jesus... Back to the story, he's standing on the shore. The disciples are out there. They haven't caught anything. And Jesus, this is hilarious. In verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, fellas, do you guys have any fish? You guys caught anything? How's the fishing going? You guys caught anything? They answered him, No. (laughs) No, strange man on the shore. We haven't caught a single thing. And uh, I, I imagine that there were probably some other words that were said that John didn't want to record. You know, no, we haven't caught anything. We're failures, we're losers. Okay, we get it, you know, stranger on the shore. We haven't caught anything. Jesus said to them, and again, they don't realize that it's Jesus. So there's a stranger on the shore who yells out to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I don't know if you've tried it, but throw it on the other side of the boat and you will find some fish. So they cast it. They finally threw their net on the other side of the boat, and they were unable to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. I love kind of picturing this scene of how long it must have taken the disciples to throw their net on the other side of the boat. If they were like, oh, great, stranger, yeah, 10 hours, great. We'll just, you know, we never thought about throwing it on the other side. Or if there was kind of this five-minute deliberation of are we really going to listen to this guy? Is this guy crazy? You know, what, what are, we, are we really going to take these heavy, wet nets at 5 in the morning and throw them on the other side of the boat just because this guy said so? But regardless, whether or not it took 10 seconds or 10 minutes to throw them net on the other side, they let their net down, and they go from kind of these groggy, tired, hungry, kind of emotionally flatlined seven bunch of dudes, throw their net in the water, and all of a sudden, Bang that all these fish start swimming, the boat starts rocking a little bit, the, the water starts to bubble up, and in that moment, I'm sure kind of like their emotional like, grogginess, like, phew, like swelled up with adrenaline, and all of a sudden, all these fish are, are rushing into the net, and it's, it's a miracle, it's crazy what's going on. The second thing that I love about Jesus, Jesus pursues the disciples to the shores exactly where they are. The second thing that I love is that the promises of Jesus can be trusted. I love, I love, I love that Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, throw your net on the other side and you maybe could find some. It's 50-50, you know, like kind of roll the dice, take a chance. Jesus says, no, if you throw your net on the other side of the, the, the boat, you will find some fish. That the promises of Jesus can be trusted. I think this, I, I work a lot with teenagers and, but I'm sure it's true all the way across this room that it's really hard to know who to trust in this world. There are constantly messages from media, from culture, from friends of saying, hey, if you don't look this way, you won't be loved. If you don't make this team, you're not, your parents aren't going to love you. If you don't get this promotion, you're a failure. That there's so many voices out there saying, hey, trust this, trust this, trust this, trust this. I love that Jesus is one that not only pursues us, but that we can trust in a world full of broken promises and mistrust that we have won, who we can fully trust. And in the midst of that trust, that obedience, the, the disciples' obedience to Jesus breeds an abundant catch of fish. That the obedience of the disciples leads and breeds abundance. Obedience breeds abundance. I love that. That when we obey Jesus, that Jesus provides in abundance. John 10.10, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus, a direct quote from him, kind of paints two different pictures, two opposites. He says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. On one hand, you have the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, to have life abundantly, to have life that's overflowing. And I think this, that a life with Jesus, Again, I don't know what your view of Jesus is and kind of what your perception is, but Jesus, when we obey him and when we follow him, that we can live in abundant life. That's not to say that, you know, we're going to walk out the doors and find 10 grand on the ground. You know, like if you do, you should call the cops, you know, or call someone. Uh, that's not to say that Jesus is, is this genie that we kind of follow him and good stuff happens to us. And I just think that when we follow Jesus, when we obey him, we can trust the abundance that he's going to give. And we see that in the scriptures. Moving on in verse, uh, picking up in verse seven. So the disciples, there's all these fish in this net They go from, like, tired and groggy to, man, all these fish in this net, their adrenaline's pumping. And all of a sudden, John, in verse 7, his gaze is turned from the miraculous catch of fish to the miracle giver. That John's gaze goes from all of these fish to the man on the shore. And in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, I love that that John calls himself that, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think he calls himself that because it's true. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, Hey, that's the Lord. That's got to be Jesus who's standing on the shore. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for his strip from work and threw himself into the sea. At 5 a.m., when the water's cold and dark, Peter jumps headfirst into the water, starts swimming to Jesus. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and some bread. I love this picture of John saying, hey guys, that's Jesus right there. And Peter, ever the impulsive one, jumps headfirst into this cold. I am not a good swimmer, so like one of my greatest fears is like open water. But Peter jumps headfirst into this dark, cold water to swim to Jesus. And I think in some sense, it'd be easy for us to make a hero out of Peter. To be, man, look at Peter's faith. That, that he just runs to Jesus in the midst of this. I think this, that Peter's not the hero of this story. The third point is that grace, tenderness, compassion, and forgiveness abound in Jesus Christ. That there's something about Jesus, that Peter's not the hero, that he, his faith swims to, to Jesus. No, I think there's something about Jesus that draws Peter in like a magnet. That even though he's 100 yards off, that Peter is so drawn to the person of Jesus Christ, he can't help but get there 30 seconds earlier than the boat. I just can't wait to be with Jesus. It's interesting that earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, Peter betrayed Jesus three times. He denied Jesus three times. When Jesus was put on trial and was about to be executed, crucified, died the most horrifying death that the Romans could think of, Peter three times had a chance to take a stand for Jesus and say, "Hey, that's that's my guy over there. I got his back." Three times he was overtly asked, "Do you know Jesus? Are you associated with him?" Are you one of his followers? Each time Peter said, no, that's not me. I don't know that guy. He betrayed Jesus. When the rooster crowed, it said that he made eye contact with Jesus on the balcony, and Peter wept bitterly. And I imagine, you know, kind of John 21 picks up a couple weeks after um, that betrayal, maybe, maybe even just a week later. It's interesting that Peter, even though he wronged Jesus, probably worse than he'd ever wronged anyone in his life, felt the guilt and the shame of betraying one of his best friends, is drawn in by Jesus. I think if you've ever been in that spot where you've really wronged someone or betrayed someone or, you know, done something really wrong to someone, the last person usually, at least for me, that you want to see, that you want to, like, face on the street is that person. That you'd think that Jesus, that Peter seeing Jesus, that Peter would be like, oh, I need to get away from Jesus. Like, Jesus and I, we're not cool anymore. Like, we, he probably hates me. You'd think that Peter would be repelled by Jesus love that Jesus the tenderness and the love com- the compassion of Jesus draws Peter in like a magnet you know I don't know what your view of Jesus is if this is your first time ever in church or 10,000th time or maybe it's been a few years and you kind of feel like man Jesus and I we're kind of we're not on great terms like we're not on like kind of swimming in dark water terms like Jesus and I I kind of did something wrong a few weekends ago or, or whatever man Jesus isn't going to want me to swim to him he, he's not that kind of God I just want to challenge that and say that I think Jesus is standing on the shore of your life with grace, tenderness, compassion, forgiveness, inviting you to come. The grandest invitation. I love the grace that Jesus has as Peter is drawn in um, to him. As we finish up the the story, so we have that Jesus pursues his disciples exactly where they are. The promises of Jesus can be trusted. That grace, tenderness, compassion, love, mercy abound in the person of Christ, and Peter swims to him. As we finish up the story, in verse 10, so kind of heading back to the story, Peter's sopping wet on the shore. You know, his clothes are still dripping. The rest of the disciples are dry because they came on the boat. In verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I think that's hilarious. Like, that you, yeah, you guys caught those fish all right. You know, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard. And hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. My question is, and this is really theological, why did no one else help Peter? You know, like Peter climbs aboard this boat, 153 fish. It's actually not a theological question. Uh, Peter climbs aboard, I was doing some research. These fish weigh about three pounds. So there's about 450 pounds of fish on this boat, and Peter's the only one dragging these to Jesus as the rest of the disciples are just hanging out watching Peter do this. I think that's hilarious. Peter climbs aboard, gets his Hulk Hogan on, Brings the fish to Jesus, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So all the fish are on the ground, the net isn't torn, and Jesus turns to them and says in verse 12, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was Jesus. Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead the last thing that I love about Jesus that I think is illustrated in John 21 is that Jesus Christ invites with this amazing abundance the invitation of Jesus for these seven men who had just betrayed him when Jesus needed them the most to have his back. They were nowhere to be found. They went back to the thing that they did fishing before they knew Jesus. They go back to the thing that they did before they knew Jesus. They're failing at it. Jesus pursues them. And not only does he help him catch all these fish in a miraculous fashion, but he has breakfast waiting for them when they show up. I think the invitation of Jesus is so abundant and is so incredible. Again, I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but is it one of abundance and of overflowing? And I was reading a little bit about this, of why the 153? Like, is there a significance from the Old Testament kind of numerically of, you know, 1 plus 5 plus 3 divided by 6 or whatever? You know, uh, I just think this. I think that the 153 is in there because John's writing this and he was there, and, and that for some reason that Jesus, they counted them, they counted these 153 fish, and that never left John's head. It's like guys, remember that day we caught 153 fish? That was amazing. And I picture the joy and the fun and the laughter of Jesus turning to the disciples and saying, "Hey, fellows, how many fish you guys got? Well, I don't know. It's a lot of them. It's a miracle." Jesus would just be like, no, seriously, let's count. This would be really fun. You know, it's the disciples, like, get, get there and three pound fish, you know. And maybe they, other people help Peter now that he kind of did all the hard work. But they're counting them. You know, 149, 150, 151, 152, 153. Jesus, that was a We've never seen. You know, they're going crazy, laughing, joy, that Jesus has this invitation where he's lavished us, lavished us with abundance. And I, I wonder what the conversations were like around the campfire that morning after a night full of fruitless fishing, what the conversations were like. My guess is that Jesus, you know, didn't have confession time where he was like, hey, fellas, so I remember that time you turned your back on me when I got crucified. My guess is that Jesus loved them and he invited them into this amazing life. I don't think he put the guilt trip on them. I think that they were so drawn to him and his forgiveness and that they couldn't help but to confess what was going on. What's your view of Jesus? Is it this picture of this abundant, this full life? Or is it that Jesus kind of invites us in to, you know, kind of let the fish go and not have any fun with Jesus? What's your view of Jesus? He invites us with incredible abundance. So now that we've looked at Jesus, and he's the hero, he's one worth following, he's worth us, kind of pointing and giving our whole lives to. He'll love us forever, and he's always going to be around. He's never going to leave us. A few implications and questions for us as we finish up here question number one what distracts you from seeing Jesus on the shore what distracts you Jesus Christ in verse 4 was standing on the shore of the disciples life but the disciples didn't recognize that it was Jesus in Revelation three twenty, it says behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him and he with me and I think this that Jesus Christ is standing on the shore of your life waiting for you to recognize him What distracts you from seeing Jesus? You might feel like you're 10 miles away out on the lake, tired, hungry. You feel like a failure. Man, you're not where you thought you would be in life, and that's distracting you from seeing Jesus. Maybe you're too busy. Maybe your idea of the good life, maybe the target that you're shooting at, you're not willing to give up. What distracts you from seeing Jesus on the shore? Here's the beautiful thing, that even if you don't recognize him, that doesn't mean that he's not there that Jesus didn't just show up and say, oh, they didn't recognize me? All right, I'm out. You guys missed your chance. Jesus stays there and he pursues them. He yells out to them. They still don't recognize that it's him. And then he provides a miracle and then they finally recognize Jesus Christ is pursuing you like crazy. What distracts you from seeing him? A second question, second challenge. Is there a place in your life where you need to be obedient to Jesus? I love in verse 5, when Jesus says, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat, on the right side, and you will find some fish. We talked about that obedience breeds abundance. Is there a place in your life where you just need to obey Jesus? Say, hey, this doesn't make sense. We've been out here for 10 hours. Like, I don't get what the difference between the net right here and the net right here. But, hey, I'm, I'm going to obey. Because you say said so, Jesus, I'm going to let down my nets. And it's interesting. I was doing some research about this, that these nets were heavy. And especially when they were wet and they were big, it wouldn't have just been an easy fix where, you know, where you've got a fishing pole and you oh, I'll just throw it on the other side. But this was, it was a kind of laborious process for all seven of them to pick up their nets and drag it on the other side. I think sometimes being obedient to Christ is really hard and it's inconvenient and it's laborious and it's a process and it takes faith. But is there a place in your life where you just need to say, all right, Jesus, this doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to be obedient to you. Maybe it's a habitual sin or... Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness to someone to help reconcile a relationship. I don't know what it is for you, but is there a place in your life where you just need to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to throw my net on the other side of the boat. The third one is this. I only have four, so hang in there. The third one is this. Do you have a John in your life, and who are you, John to? Kyle, what does that mean? Do you have a John in your life? It's interesting that for Peter, Peter isn't the one to first recognize Jesus. It's John. In verse 7, as the fish are kind of all in the boat and all the disciples are focused on the fish of like, wow, this is amazing. All these fish are here. John's the one who says, hey, that's the Lord. That's Jesus right there. And John's faith acts as a catalyst for Peter's faith. And this is speculation, I'm not sure, but if John never realizes that, hey, that's Jesus on the shore, does Peter ever get in the water? And later in John 21, the, John's gospel ends with this beautiful reinstatement of Peter. Man, if, if John doesn't see Jesus, does Peter ever jump in. Do you have someone whose faith can be a catalyst for your faith? Do you have a John in your life who when you're tired, and angry, hungry, dejected, you feel like a failure, you've been out there all night, man, I just feel really dry in my life right now. Do you have someone in your life who's going to put their arm around you and say, hey, that's Jesus over there. Let's go follow him. That's Jesus. Do you have a John in your life? And then the second question, this is a varsity level question, are you John to someone else? Is there someone in your life who you can put your arm around them? if it's a coworker, a neighbor, family member, someone at school, that you can say, hey, I know you're tired. I know you're hungry. I know you feel beat up. I know you feel like Jesus is a thousand miles away, but that's him right there. I know you don't recognize him, but I do. And that your faith can act as a catalyst for someone else's faith. Do you have a John in your life where someone's pointing Jesus out to you when you need it the most? And are you that John to someone else? And the last one is this, last question, implication, kind of charge, challenge for us. Uh, And it'll take me a few minutes to land the plane. So kind of stick with me. If you've zoned out, zone back in. Uh, I promise it'll be a good one. Uh, Number four, what do you need to right size in your life? What do you need to right size in your life? Here's what I mean by that. It's really interesting for Peter, you think of as a fisherman, what was his ideal day? As he was in bed each night, instead of counting sheep, I think he'd count fish. You know, like, like his best day at work was a boat full of fish, a net full of fish. It meant security financially for him. Maybe he could take a vacation. He could feed his family. It meant a sense of significance and success of, hey, I finally caught something. You know, this is great. Look at how awesome I am. That a boat full of fish for Peter was everything. You think of like a target, like that is the good life, is a boat full of fish. It's so interesting that when Peter is tasked with everything in the boat, Six of his buddies, in his best day fishing, his best day on the job, all the significance and success that was represented literally and metaphorically in the boat, when it was Jesus over there or the stuff in the boat, Peter chose Jesus. I love that about Jesus, that he's worth us leaving everything behind for. I think Peter in that moment left behind the fish and his buddies to swim to Jesus, not because he hated them or because God hates fish, you know, or, or friends, No, but because Jesus Christ is the most important thing and the only thing that's worth us giving our lives to. And I love that Peter right-sizes what's in the boat to swim to Jesus. The only person who's going to love us always and is going to be with us forever. And I love even more than that, that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, now that you've come to me, now that you've prioritized me, number one, and kind of left some stuff behind, you know, I want you to like go burn the boat. Jesus doesn't say that. I love in verse 10 how Jesus says, hey, Peter, Now that you've chosen me and that we're good, you pursued me, you swam to me, and you were willing to leave everything behind, I want you to go back to those fish. I want you to go back to the very stuff that you left behind, and hey, I want you to bring those to me. I love this illustration of Peter leaving everything behind to swim to Jesus, and then Jesus sending Peter on a secret mission. Hey, go bring me back. Go bring me back the stuff you left behind and bring that to me. I want to bring redemption and restoration to the stuff in the boat too. And again, I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but I love this idea of full, abundant life in Christ as we choose him, as really, I think, kind of as that opening illustration that we can really only shoot at one thing in our life. We can really only give ourselves to either ourselves and what we want, or we can give ourselves to the one who knows us, who created us, and who loves us. And so is there something in your life that you need to right size, that maybe you need to leave behind in the boat to swim to Jesus because he's worth it and he's worth leaving everything for, only to be sent back to those very things to bring them to Jesus, uh, who wants to bring redemption and restoration to them. Is there something in your life that you need to right-size? As uh, as we finish up here, I uh, have one quote uh, or il- illustration for for you. Yeah, thanks for uh, being great this morning. Um, When I was in college, I went to Grove City College um, and was a volunteer Young Life leader there. Um, And one of my heroes uh, was the area director there, the Young Life area director there, which is fun that I'm an area director here now for Young Life. But his name is Brad Mowry. He's a great friend, mentor of mine. He's still in Grove City. Um, I remember sitting in in leadership, kind of in our Bible study as a 19-year-old, and Brad said this quote that stuck with me, and I want this to kind of wrap up our time together. He said this, he said, so often we live as peasants in the fields, so often we live as peasants in the fields when we're really sons and daughters of the king. So often we live like peasants working in the fields, trying really hard, distant, distant from the king, distant, anonymous, unknown from the king, when really we are sons and daughters of the king of kings, meant for the castle. And that really hit me hard as a 19-year-old because I was volunteering with Young Life, giving 15, 20 hours a week, volunteering, leading Bible studies, hanging out with high school kids, trying to show them how much God loves them. But I felt like I was really doing a lot of good work for God. But I felt like a peasant. I was running really hard. I was doing God's stuff, but I was really disconnected from God. And I don't know if there's anyone here in in this room or that you just feel like you've been grinding out in the fields. You've been working really hard for God. You've been doing the right things. Maybe you feel like you've been doing the wrong things, but distant and disconnected from God, that Jesus Christ, the grandest invitation of them all is that he invites us not to spend our lives in the fields, grinding, working really hard, distant from him, but man, the King of Kings says, you are my son, you are my daughter. You were made for the kingdom. Will you come home? There's a banquet table in the castle right next to the King of Kings and there's a spot with your name tag on it and the question is, is will you come home? Will you come home to the King who loves you like crazy and who invites you into a relationship with Him? So I'd love for us to take, as the music team comes up, just to bow your head and close your eyes, just to reflect on what this invitation would mean. You know, if you feel like you've uh, been a Christian for a while, would ask you to, to come to him today, not yesterday, not the day before, to come to him, to come home. And if you're new to the whole God thing, and just kind of find yourselves, you know, trying to figure this out, I ask you to consider what it would mean to come home to the one who knows you and loves you. Let me pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for just your amazing invitation. I thank you that you've pursued each and every one of us. Lord, that you showed up on the shores of our lives. God, when we had turned our back on you, that you showed up on the shores and that you pursue us like crazy. Thank you that just mercy and love and grace and tenderness abound in you, that you are the only thing worth our deepest affections, that we can trust you fully and trust in your promises. And I just pray, Lord, today that you would draw some of your sons and daughters home to the kingdom. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.